Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this outspoken event with uh, Claire Bodich and Lee Robshaw. Before we begin, it, it, I believe it's appropriate that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered, the Jinnabara people and the Gabi Gabi people. They're the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those who continue to work for the protection and promotion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, creating a legacy for future elders and leaders. Lee Robshaw. Lee is a journalist, freelance writer, copywriter, business blogger, and sub-editor. She lives here in Mullaney and writes for a remarkable range of magazines and publications, including Mind Food, who don't know how to spell their name. They get their kind of fonts all mixed up, uh, like Facebook. Uh, New Matilda, Salt, My Weekly Preview, Lonely Planet, The Open Road, Sunshine Coast Daily, Nature and Health, Hinterland Times, Holiday and Travel, and uh, MBF's Living Well. She's recently published this fast-paced, colourful and sometimes shocking memoir, You Had Me at Ola, set mainly in South America. Please welcome Lee to the stage. Sally, so let's begin at the beginning. You're, what, 23 years old? Working in Sydney as a journalist for the magazine The Planet, and you've been planning a, a trip to for South America for the previous year with your girlfriend Emily. Eventually, after all this time of planning and raising funds and doing it, you arrive in Buenos Aires. Within 72 hours, you've fallen in love with a Peruvian artisan. Which, uh, doesn't everyone do that when they go travelling? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was normal. Um, no, it was, it was quite extraordinary, um, but uh, I didn't realise for quite a few years after I, after I left that that happening and the journey that uh, unfolded after that was actually quite unusual. Um, lots of people go backpacking in their 20s and um, go through really risky situations and put themselves in life-threatening situations and as you do when you're young and fearless, I guess. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was something deeper and more meaningful there um, that I realised later after I left that... Um, I wanted to write about. Yeah, because, I mean, it wasn't just a fling, this, this, this meeting up with the artisan. You, you've been planning, in fact, you've been planning this trip with Emily and you had agreed to three months of travel through various different countries in South America mm. and you felt obliged to fulfil that obligation mm. to, to, to her. Mm. But it, um, it wasn't really what you wanted to do, was it? No, no. When I, when I met him, it was on my third day in a market in Buenos Aires, and it sounds very cliche, but it was, it was love at first sight, and I didn't speak much Spanish, and he didn't speak any English at all, and um, it was a very intense, instant connection that, as we did get to know each other, and, and I did learn Spanish, um, I realised was... Uh, sort of what I had felt it was before we could even speak to each other. So there was just some sort of um, unusual, I don't know, some people think past life connection or who knows what it was, but there was an instant um, feeling like I have to be with this person and I'm willing to give up the whole three-month trip um, to stay here with him. But um, I was there with my friend from Australia. We had planned this trip together together. 
And I didn't want to. I didn't want to abandon her. And I also wanted to go and experience the things that we had planned, which was going travelling through Brazil for four weeks and going to Carnival, and then going to Bolivia and then going to Peru. And it was only going to be three months, and then off to London. And it ended up being three and a half years. So uh, you, you, you're really in this in this memoir you've written. You, you're really quite unstinting in the depiction of your younger self. Uh, this party girl you know, going around uh, South America, wrapping herself in light and uh, wandering all, o all over these, <laughs> this, these countries. Was it, was it hard for you to do that, to write that, looking back now? I mean, I ask this question because years ago when I was writing a novel about my younger self, mm. I found it really, really impossible to find any sympathy for him. He was such mm. a jerk. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. And to actually kind of enter that, that personality from a generous point of view was very, very difficult. Yeah, it was. It was hard because I was an idiot and um, <laughs> I did a lot of really stupid things. And um, I'm just lucky that I'm here today, really, because I was in probably four or five different life-threatening situations over there, and I thought white light was um, protecting me. Um, so I was kind of a, a new ager back then and um, always surrounded myself in white light and, and um, thought that's all you need to do to then get in cars with guys at midnight in Rio and, like, go off driving through the streets and you'll be fine. <laughs> Um, and fortunately, for whatever reason, nothing really too bad ever happened to me, actually, but I think it was more luck than anything. Yeah. So after three months, you eventually get up enough courage to tell Emily that you're not going to go to London with her, that you're going to stay, and mm. so you flew back to Buenos Aires, yeah, or caught a bus or something, or got back to Buenos to... Aires somehow or other. Yeah, I flew back there from Lima in Peru, yeah. And stayed with her, and stayed with Gabriel, but... Mm. So how was that? I mean, what, what, what was that like? That was just amazing because um, we'd only met on my third day there and we'd spent one night together the day I met him and then um, a day the next day and then we were pretty much leaving Buenos Aires so I had hardly met him and we'd had this sign language um, interaction <clears throat> and um, then I'd gone off for three months um, and thinking about him the whole, the whole time and wondering if what I thought I had felt was real because you doubt, you know, you doubt yourself and whether he felt the same way and all that. And then when I got back, it was, it was what I had thought it was and he felt the same way and we wanted to be together forever and get married and have babies and I was never coming back to Australia again. So what happened? <laughs> you, have to, <laughs> you have to read the book to find out. No, no. No, but you can give us a, a, little, a little teaser because what, what happened was you, you didn't stay an awful long, long, a, a no, long time no. of you, you then had to no. go back to London. I did, yeah. So um, I had a plane ticket that expired. So um, I, I had, I think, two weeks left um, before it expired. And if I didn't, and I had no money. So my whole trip basically <clears throat> was on a shoestring and I never had any money and I <clears throat> couldn't really afford to to buy another flight. If I didn't take that flight and, and go to London, it was um, the end of the line. It was a trip from uh, um, Sydney to Buenos Aires and six stops in South America and then ending in London where I was going to work and 
replenish my savings and then go to India or Asia or whatever, but because I met him, that all went out the window and um, I had to just make a choice because I really wanted to stay in Buenos Aires with him, um, but I had no money and no way out of there. And then um, there were some things that I discovered about him that made me question, um, do I really want to be here? Is this person really who I think he is? No, I think I'll go to London and use my ticket and go earn some money and I can always come back, which I did. And that um, becomes the rest of the book. Yeah, so you, I mean, you then went back and spent another three years in yeah. South America mm. and presumably became very fluent in Spanish as yeah. well, I, I would imagine, yeah? I did, yeah. He he spoke no English and um, as far as I know, still doesn't doesn't speak, had no, no need to speak any English because he was in his country. And I, um, yeah, so our, our entire relationship was in Spanish. And um, so it got to the point where, yeah, when I went there, I didn't, really know any Spanish. I knew, I knew a few greetings and numbers and that sort of thing. And then by the end, <clears throat> yeah, I was fluent and I was actually dreaming in Spanish, which was really amazing because you know that a language has really penetrated your psyche when you start to have dreams where conversations are happening in Spanish. Mm. And, I mean, you were living basically off what you could, you had no money in either of you. You were just, no. he was an artisan making jewellery. Yeah. And you had this kind of fantasy of becoming an artisan yourself, except mm. you found that you were kind of shit at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Um, because I, um, I was so enamoured with Latin America and just wanted to be South American, like some people grow up and they want to be a ballerina or an astronaut, and I wanted to be South American, and met him and thought, yeah, I can, I can, this is where I belong. I actually felt like that's where I belonged. And he made this beautiful jewellery by hand using only three pliers, and it's, it's a style of Peruvian jewellery where they don't use any power tools or soldering irons or anything like that, and it was just wire and three pliers and beautiful stones. And I just found it so pure and genuine and real and just making this beautiful jewellery by hand, one-off pieces, that you would then sit in the street and sell to people face to face and tell them the story about each piece and where the stones came from and how it was made. And he used to say he could talk to the stones and he would ask, he would look at them and try and tune into their energy or whatever and, and um, ask them what they wanted to become. And um, he would create these amazing pieces. And I was just so impressed with that and um, thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that too, and asked him to teach me. And um, I was just really terrible at it. And because um, I just, I'm not a patient person at all. And both my grandmas tried to teach me to knit, crochet and sew, and I just could not do any of that. And um, so any craft, I don't do, no craft. And so trying to make a living out of making jewellery was never going to work for me. So. I decided somewhere along the line, um, I'll be the salesperson because I speak English and I'll, that can be my contribution. He wasn't so happy with that really because he thought, I'm the one making the money here. I'm, I'm spending hours and hours making this jewellery and um, you need to learn how to do it too. And um, I just kept procrastinating and putting off actually learning it. And I um, 
yeah, we didn't have, we didn't really have much money and at times we had no money and lost all our money and slept on beaches and um, missed meals and all that sort of thing. And then serendipity would, would occur and sometimes we would sell a piece that really was worth $5. And I remember this one time that I write about in the book when a German tourist just was like, oh, my God, look at this, and was showing his friend, and it was like a cheap necklace worth $5. And I think he paid $50 or something and would probably would have paid more. And, um, and so things like that would happen, and then we'd go, great, we've got $50. So that'll last us, you know, a few meals and a few nights because we stayed, you know, the cheapest places you can find. Um, and or we would catch bus buses overnight so you don't pay for accommodation and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I was absolutely shit at being an artisan and it took me a long time to accept that that was not really my forte. <laughs> but, I mean, in your defence, you were, you were learning what your real skill is, that, that you're actually a writer and that's what you wanted to do with your life, isn't it? And this was all kind of part of that process. This book is, is really a coming-of-age story, isn't mm. it? Yeah, yeah. That's a, sort of a later coming-of-age story, really, because I was 23 when I went there and, um, yeah, looking, trying to find my life purpose, my identity, who I was and what I really wanted to do in my life. And um, I had always loved writing and I had always been a reader. And as a child, I wrote poetry about war and I wrote all these melodramatic short stories and performed them for my family and um, but I never pictured myself as a writer I never thought that was a job I could actually do um, and I came from a family of um, working class labor voters who were like you get a job that earns you a steady wage and you just be happy with that and um, I remember telling my mum at one point I wanted to study literature at university and I think she said, well, how's that going to help you get a job? And um, so... It's a, it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it is, actually, <laughs> unfortunately. Unless you're Trent Dalton or um, yep. Elizabeth Gilbert or someone. Yeah. Um, so um, that's why I went into journalism because I did have some sort of common sense going on as well. That I thought, well, I can, at least I can write as a journalist, but I never pictured myself being a real writer. <laughs> but, uh, it, I mean, reading the book for me was that this sense of this, this young party girl who goes off to South America to have a good time. Mm. And, but the person who comes back was, a, was, a, was a, ve a very different woman indeed. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely, because um, I guess reality really hit me in the face quite a few times and, um, yeah, I guess I just matured. I was in my early 20s when I left and I was in my late 20s when I came back and um, had, a, had a stronger sense of um, what, who I was and what I wanted out of life and that non-stop partying isn't necessarily where it's at and, um, you know, Aristotle and Socrates talked about the, the real key to happiness being living a virtuous life, really, and um, pursuing happiness for the sake of it is not where happiness lies. And, and um, I have always wanted to not, not necessarily be a saint, but live a virtuous life in terms of uh, having a, 
a good sense of morality and doing the right thing and earning a living in a way that is not going to harm anyone or rip anyone off. I could never be a banker or, you know, a Wall Street tycoon that just rips people off for a living. I just would not be able to live with myself. I would rather be a poor writer that um, lives in Mulaney. <laughs> Um, that's, that's so there's, there's I a, did there's, leave... There's a few of us around. Uh, <laughs> so I did leave a different person with, um, yeah, a bit more um, common sense and, a, and not such a um, need to just party 24-7 with artisans and musicians in South America. And I've got one more question, if that's right. Just that I read parts of this manuscript in an earlier draft, and one of the things that impressed me about this book, you, you add me at Ola, is the unerring confidence of the voice, which wasn't so evident in those earlier drafts. What changed for you during the writing process to bring about that? Because it, it's fantastic, and I just wanted to oh, know thanks. what happened. Thank you. Um, yeah, I did, I did write it uh, originally in past tense and I didn't like it. Actually, I didn't like the way it sounded. I just I wrote the first couple of drafts and um, I just wasn't happy with it. And um, I think I told you one time, like, I've written 70,000 words and it's crap. And you said, just, yes, but then you just keep going. Like, you write 70,000 words of crap and you keep going. And um, I was going to give up at that point, actually, and... Um, and then when Trent Dalton came to Outspoken, I met him and chatted to him and, and asked him about the process of writing um, Boy Swallows Universe. And he said, oh, God, I, didn't, I never thought I could write a book. Like, I doubted myself the whole way. And I just realised that every writer doubts themselves. And um, you do have to just keep going until you um, feel like you've nailed it. And then when I read Boy Swallows Universe, it was set in the 80s, but in present tense. And I just went, that's how I have to write my book. So I went and rewrote the whole thing from past tense to present tense one, one week when I had the flu and I was lying flat in my bed with my laptop. Just um, the, the minute I changed the first chapter to present tense, it just felt right. And um, it just felt more immediate. And then I just... I just gained some some confidence from having having met Trent and him have, experiencing so much success with his book, yet also sharing how much he doubted his own writing. Um, that I just thought, well, you just you just have to do it and just keep going. And and um, if one person reads it and likes it, then fine, like you've done it, and I wanted to do it for 20 years, so it was a long time coming. <laughs> and a great success it is too, and uh, thank Thanks. you so much for coming and talking to us at Thank Outspoken. you. Put your hands together, Thanks, please, for the love talk.